Morning, Compass. Uh, it's such an honor. This always sounds so loud when I'm up here. But it's such an honor to be asked to speak on a Sunday morning. Because if you've ever pastored or you've um, had a pastor's heart, you know that one of the most important things you do is feed the sheep. <clears throat> and you only have about an hour a week sometimes to do that. So whenever you have to have uh, someone fill in for you, it's a really, really big deal. So you want to make sure that you're you're giving them the right healthy food to eat. And so it's always an honor when someone asks you to do that because uh, you know that they have a little bit of confidence in you. So thanks, Pastor Allen, wherever you are. Where are they? You know? Arkansas. So somewhere in Arkansas. And Michelle. Michelle's a big part of that too. So thank you all so much. Um, we are going to... Uh, one thing is uh, I used to do this every single week, um, sometimes two to three times a week. And I haven't done it weekly in years, so that means two things. One, it means I'm going to be a little bit rusty, which is okay, because I know you're people of grace here. But two, it means I have a lot to say. So buckle up, settle in, it's going to be a good one today. So uh, hopefully I'll try to keep it, keep it timely as, as much as I possibly can. Whoa, I'm losing my, losing my thing here. And uh, we'll have a great day, so I'm really excited. We're going to read from Psalm 139, so if you want to turn there, feel free. And we're going we're gonna to try to simplify a very, very big concept this morning. So if we can wrap our ra- hands around what we're going to talk about, it will literally change your life. It changed my life in 2002. I'll tell you more about that later. Uh, but this is a really big com- concept that we're going to try to tell some stories and try to simplify and, and help us wrap our arms around. So Psalm 139, we're going to start on verse 7, and I want you just to kind of really just meditate on these words as we read, because it's, uh, it's more than actually I can comprehend, and probably you too, if you really sit down to think about it. Psalm 139, 7 says, where can I go from your spirit? Or some translations might say, where can I go to hide from you, escape from you? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend all the way up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there, or the low place. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, for you formed me. In my inward parts, you wove me together, you weaved me together, you created me, you you shaped me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, or my personhood was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. Now think about this. This is one person talking about the eternal God. Like the eternal God cared enough about one person that he wrote down in his book all of the days of this person's life, probably David. When as yet there was not one of them come to pass yet. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Um... Michelle asked for a title to put on the slide, and I really didn't have one. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what God's doing with the grace that he's given us uh, as we're walking along this journey is he's just trailblazing a path for us. And you guys know I love to hike. I love the outdoors. I love Alaska, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a few minutes. And so I thought about this God who, by his grace, blazes trails for us to travel on. And so I thought, well, that's a pretty fitting title, The Trailblazing Grace of, an adventure, of the Adventurous God. Julie and I realized we liked each other um, somewhere around Valentine's Day in 1998. We were actually leading a small group together, and um, this is really cool how this actually came to pass, so I'll tell you this story. Am I, like, really popping? Are we okay? Okay, Tony? Okay. Um, I'll tell you this story. I actually went, uh, we were starting some new small groups in our church, like a new round of small groups, just like we do here at Compass. And I went to the pastor, his name was Mark, he was actually the associate pastor in charge of small groups. And I said, I, um, th- I took him a book and I said, this is a small group I'd really like to lead for this semester. First time I led a small group in that particular church. And he just kind of looked at the book and kind of turned his head sideways. I'll never forget this. I remember it like it was yesterday. And he said, you know, 
There's another person in this church that actually brought this same book to me and said they would like to lead this as well. And um, I said, well, that's pretty cool. And he said, maybe you guys should uh, partner together and, uh, and do this book uh, in a small group. And her name is Julie Andrews. Have you heard that name before? You've heard Julie Beasley, but you also, right, you've got, uh, who's Julie Andrews? Is um, Mary Poppins, right? So I thought that was kind of weird because I recognized the name. I said, oh, Julie Andrews. And I actually knew her for another reason. My roommate was my best friend, and we had been best friends for since third grade. Like, we grew up together and watched, w, at the time it was called WWF Wrestling, and, you know, spent nights together, and just, we really just loved uh, spending time together. And so we ended up kind of following each other. His name is Scott. He ended up following me down to Bible College in, uh, in uh, Lakeland, Florida. And Scott had actually had a little bit of a crush on Julie. We went, all went to the same church together, and we were roommates, and so... Um, about this same time that we, we both took the same uh, topic for a small group to the pastor and decided that we should do this group together, Scott was actually going out on his first date with Julie, which was really interesting now in hindsight to think about it. So he went out with her, and I did what I usually do on Friday nights. I went to bed at 9 o'clock after I read my book and, you know, read a little bit of Bible. Scott was always out. He was always the, the adventurous one, and I was always in bed. But um, Scott came in. About 11 o'clock after he had gone out on his first date with Julie, and I, I kind of woke up out of my slumber, and I said, hey man, how'd it go? And he said, well, it went really good, but I think you would have been, you're the one that should have been there. So that shows you how much, how well Scott knows me, right? So actually, Scott predicted long before we even kind of got together that Julie and I would actually be really good for each other. But seeing the hand of God pulling that small group together, what happened with Scott, um, it, it was amazing to kind of watch and think back on now. Um, that was probably fall, probably the fall of um, the year. And then by, by um, February, by Valentine's Day, we felt like, hey, we want to get to know each other a little bit better. So about eight months passed. Uh, somewhere around probably November of 1998, I, I decided, and I think she decided, that you know maybe we should spend the rest of our lives together. So I began to prepare. You guys, how many of you have been there before, right? Trying to prepare for, yeah, for the big question, right? And you're thinking about everything. You got this little, little uh, nervousness in the pit of your stomach because you're not 100% sure what they're going to say or how they're going to feel about it. But you start to pray. So I talked with her father. I searched for the perfect ring, scraped up every penny I can to try to, try to purchase the ring. And, but I didn't want her to just to be surprised by the fact that I was actually asking her the question. I wanted her to just be blown away, right? I wanted to give her a night that she would remember for the rest of her life that would kind of become a marker for her. Um, so she had planned to come on Christmas Day to visit with my family, and uh, she was flying into Nashville. Uh, so this was, I don't know if any of you remember, some of you guys are a little bit older, remember uh, Christmas of 1998, and I'm not sure how it was here, but in North Alabama and Tennessee, it was the largest ice storm in recorded history. It was huge. There was as much as like sheets of ice that were three inches deep in North Alabama and into Tennessee. And so leading up to that day where she was going to fly into Nashville, we had the biggest ice storm in the history, uh, since in recorded history. I could not plan that. Like, I couldn't dial up the Lord. I mean, I could try probably, but I probably couldn't dial up the Lord and say, Lord, send this big, huge ice storm because I'm going to propose to, to Julie, right? So the Lord's hand was in that as well. And why I say that is because, like, it, that was about the 22nd, 23rd of the month. And by the 25th, it had melted off enough that you could drive on the roads but it looked like, seriously, like the whole world was made of glass. It was the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. So all the trees looked like glass and the houses looked like glass because there's just sheets of ice on everything. And so I take off to Nashville to pick Julie up. I actually want to take her to um, the Opryland Hotel. I don't know what it's called now, the Gaylord Hotel Resort. Not to book a room. Let me just, let me clear that up right now, okay? We did not book a room at the Opryland Hotel. But it's so beautiful. If you've ever been there at Christmas, they do Christmas about as good as anybody in the country. So I thought it'd be so cool to kind of walk her through, you know, the Christmas, Christmas decorations at the, at the resort there. And uh, there's this little restaurant right in the middle that you can sit and kind of overlook all the beautiful decorations. Now, that's the perfect place to pop the question. So I actually took this little thing right here, this little clay pot right here. She doesn't wear her ring, her engagement ring right now she's got a wedding ring on but and I took this ring right here that I'd scratched and saved for and uh you know I I found this little Indian well he wasn't little he was a pretty big guy but this Indian manager at this little Italian restaurant that overlooks the the Opryland Hotel and 
Um, I went, this is like in two hours before I was going to come back. This was probably like five o'clock or four o'clock in the afternoon. I was going to, I said, I'll be back at seven o'clock tonight. And I'm going to do something that's probably crazy. I'm going to leave this with you. And what I want you to do is after we eat and when we're getting our bill, I want you to bring this out and I want you to treat, treat this lady like a queen. You're going to get a really good tip if you do this for me, right? I said, you woke up this morning and your job wasn't that important. Well, to me, it just became the most important job in the world. So this is what I'm going to entrust you with. Uh, and I, I left this thing in here and um, asked him to bring this to Julie whenever uh, he brought the bill out to our table. So I went to pick up Julie. Um, I just, again, I just wanted her just to, I, don't, I didn't want her to be surprised. I wanted her to cry like a little baby. I mean, seriously, I wanted her to be proud of me. I wanted to be the big man and I wanted to just blow her mind, right? And it happened actually exactly like that. There it is right there. You can't really tell up there, but she's crying like a little baby. There's tears rolling down her eyes. And there's my little Indian friend with my little little clay pot there. So I'm not going to mention anything about that hideous sweater that I'm wearing. But it was the late 90s. So that actually, believe it or not, that was in, a little bit in style in the late 90s. It's hideous right now. So um, all, that night, I was able to give to Julie one of the most special nights or gifts of her life. Um, and the investment, the planning, the money, all that went into that stuff that led up to that moment was part of the gift that I gave to her and part of what led her to make the most important decision of her life and to begin our lives together. And I believe that God designed every single aspect and every experience in our life for one purpose, to teach us about Him. Uh, marriage, this proposal, anything you go through in life, it's going to burn, it's going to, it's going to die away, but our relationship with the Lord will never die. And so anything we experience here on this earth, I believe, is just a finger pointing to Jesus, pointing to the grace and the love of the Lord. And the story I just told you, I think will play a really important part to help you understand this big, big topic we're going to talk about this morning, which is uh, the theological principle all throughout Scripture where God walks ahead of us to prepare the way, to trailblaze a trail for us to kind of walk in his perfect plan for our life. I can remember when I very first became a believer. That was, I uh, don't remember the year, but I was 15 years old. Um, and then I remember um, when I was 22, 23 years old, up to 25 years old, I would hear people sing the song Amazing Grace, and I would hear preachers talk about grace, and I just couldn't get it. Have you ever, I don't know if you guys have ever struggled with like some principle in the Bible, but it just didn't really make sense to you. And I remember struggling with it because I would hear about grace all the time. Like that was one of the words that, you know, the church just uses non, I mean, over and over and over. And I'd be like, I don't understand what this word grace means. And uh, I'll never forget the moment that the veil came off of my eyes and I had a full picture of grace. I was driving home from Denver. We lived in Colorado at the time. I was driving home from Denver to where we lived about halfway to Colorado Springs. And I was on I-25. And I can't explain how the Lord opened up my eyes to grace. There was this guy talking on the radio, and he was talking a little bit about it. But it, and that had a little bit to do with it. But it was more just about like the veil being torn off my eyes and seeing the gift of God in a way that I never had before. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I started crying so hard I couldn't hardly drive. Like There were so many tears in my eyes. I literally remember pulling off on the side of the road and just basking in the, in a re, the reality of, of the gift of grace. And um, there's so many aspects of grace, and it's so big that it takes us a while to get it. And you may be sitting there thinking, I have never really understood what grace is about. Like, I don't know what that word means. I was there 10 years. I had preached probably dozens of sermons. I was a youth evangelist when I was young, I preached probably dozens of sermons and hundreds of Bible studies before I really came to a full knowledge of what the word grace meant. And it meant when I really found it and, it, and the veil was torn from my eyes, it meant so much to me that just a few months later I had a, my first child. What's her name? It's Grace, right? It meant so much to me and it opened so much up in my relationship with the Lord that I, we, I, that's why Grace carries her name today. And so that'll always, Grace will always point back to that moment to me that I found, uh, found out about Grace. Um, the Greek word for Grace is charis. It's from the, uh, where we get the word charismatic. Because charismatic people experience the gifts and the graces of the Lord. Uh, so we're, we are a people of Grace. If you uh, count yourself as charismatic, all of Christendom should count themselves as charismatic. 
because we're all given the gift of grace. Um, and the definition, if you want to just put it into a definition, it would be the totally 100% undeserved favor of being made right with the Lord. The unimaginable gift of Jesus Christ and His redemption in our life. The story that only God could tell. Because it's too much for us to understand. Um, the story that goes so far beyond reason and it's so full of unconditional love that humanity really can't grasp it without a revelation from the Lord, without a true revelation of what it is. Because we're not a people of unconditional love apart from the Lord. The closest we can get to unconditional love is with our child, probably a mother to her children. Possibly um, a married couple, but probably even then we struggle with unconditional love, right? Because we get hurt by them and we carry that hurt and anger. Uh, and it impacts negatively our relationship. The story that only God can tell and that only we can experience with the help of the Lord. John Wesley is one of my favorite Bible teachers. He lived long, long ago, hundreds of years ago. But he taught that grace was multifaceted. Actually, just like this little diamond ring that I gave, that I gave Julie on, on December 25th, 1998. So if you look at a diamond, it can be cut into different shapes. But any, any cut diamond has surfaces, facets, depending on how it's cut. And so if I look at the, uh, this ring from this direction, I see an expression of this diamond. One expression, one facet, one face of this diamond. But if I turn it just a little bit, there's a whole different facet to look at to explore, to express the beauty of this diamond. And that, I think, is a wonderful picture of grace because grace comes in thousands and thousands. It's really unlimited how many forms grace can come to us uh, and be revealed to us from the Lord. Uh, it has many facets. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace... You have been saved. So we, we live in a salvation that at the very root of it is the gift of grace. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. In other words, there's nothing we can do to earn grace, for grace to be a payment for anything that we do. It's all by His gift. There's two words in these scriptures we just read. The first one, obviously, is grace. We've already talked about it. It's charis. It's in verse 8. It says, for, grace you have been sa- for by grace you have been saved. And the theological definition of the word charis is especially the divine influence on the heart of man that is then reflected from the man's heart outward to others. Okay, grab that. That's a good one. So the grace of the Lord is theologically defined as the divine, the God influence on the heart of man that reflects off of his heart outward to others to reveal the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's pretty good stuff, I tell you. The second word that we find in this set of scriptures is in verse 9. And uh, if the first word is grace, the second word is, says it is the gift of God. The word gift is the Greek word doron there. Listen to this. That word doron is a present, a gift, a present, but it's a present that's already been wrapped up with a bow on the top. Now, when I give presents or when someone gives a present to me, a gift to me like at Christmas, which we're coming up on, it, the, the present, you go and you purchase it, you get excited about it, you know, you look forward to seeing how someone will react, and then the last thing you do before you give it to them is wrap it up, put a bow on it. It is finished. And where, do, where does that sound familiar in Scripture, right? Jesus hung on the cross, died the death for us, stretched his hand out and said, it is finished. The gift of grace is finished. It's wrapped up, the bow's on top, it's ready to be given to my people. And then our job is simply to do what? Grab that thing, right? Unwrap it. Get excited about it. You know, get filled up with the gift that God has given it. So the gift of grace is wrapped up and ready to go. And it's nothing I earn. I earn a salary, but there's nothing I do to earn the presents, the gifts that people give to me, right? But it's, it's one gift with many facets. And how many ways do we see this gift of grace in our life? Um, 
It could be as simple. I'll tell you one. Uh, John Wesley, when he talked about the different ways that we see the expression of God's grace in our life, he refers to those as means of grace, M-E-A-N-S, means of grace, or faces of grace, or facets of grace, or expressions of grace. And uh, so it could come in like thousands of forms. So just the other day, two days ago, I think I was riding with Clayton here uh, down, the, down a back road, and um, I was just frustrated because this person had kind of left us hanging on something, and you know, the cares of life was kind of all tangled up in my mind, and I was a little irritated. And I looked up, and something, like, again, scales fell off my eyes, and I saw yellow trees and orange trees and brown trees. The leaves were changing for the fall. And I was just like, wow, look at that. Because just one day, 24 hours before, nothing and then I just raised my, uh, my eyes up when I was driving down the road and see all of these colorful trees. And the Lord just like tapped on me and took a key and opened up this door of my heart to force me to start thinking about seasons of life. And I started thinking about little Susanna, who's seven years old. And this year, you know, 2018, you know, we dunked her right out there, baptized her, and now she's living an expression of faith. She cared enough to, and she did, she, this meant a lot to her, she cared enough to uh, express to her church that she believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, a season, a new chapter of her life open. Grace uh, this year got her, oh, Grace, oh, can't even hardly talk about it, but Grace got her driver's permit, right? So the last few weeks, today she didn't because we were in the New Leaf van, but the last few weeks the family's been riding with Grace to church. That is a new season, let me tell you. That's a scary chapter that has opened up, but... But Grace is in this new season where she's learning to be independent. You know, she's got a little crush on somebody that we won't talk about. And uh, she's just in a new season of her life. My boys, I look at my boys, you know, and I see them growing from boys to men. And I see them just kind of like struggling through and trying to explore what it looks like to be a man. Asking the question that I asked when I was a kid, do I have what it takes to go from being a boy to a man? You know, what am I going to do with my life? I just see them starting to think about those things. And all of those, that whole thought process and that whole blessing and that whole impactful day for the rest of the day, I just kept thinking about it, came from a single means of grace of looking up and seeing the leaves changing. That's a picture of the, of the provenient, we're going to talk about the word provenient, the grace of God that blazes a trail for us. And he does it all throughout our lives. Uh, but there's one gift with many facets like the diamond, um, and that's how the grace of God works. And that is how we can never, ever, ever get bored, never get burned out, never get tired of coming to know the Lord because he continues to throw at us these little means of grace, these little windows into his love and his grace for us. Uh, John Wesley taught about three primary facets of grace. I'm going to lay out these theological terms, and then we're going to come back and really simplify them. Uh, but there's three graces that John Wesley loved to teach about. The first one was justifying grace. If you're a note taker, this is a good place to do a number one. Justifying grace. Uh, justifying grace is actually a legal term or justification is a legal term. You hear that all over the justice system, which is the root of that word, right? And so if you go to court and you've done something wrong, uh, the, the ju- justice says that you have to be justified by paying some penalty. It might be money, it might be time and place that you probably don't want to spend uh, time in, but you have to pay some, pen- some price for, for something that you've done wrong, right? And so that's a picture of justifying grace. It's a legal action that is taken care of in a split second. It's a decision you come to. So we are all people who have fallen, who have turned away from the Lord because we carry the seed of Adam inside of us, and Adam turned from the Lord. And so there's a moment in our life when we wake up and realize that we are not right with God, that we have done things wrong that requires a penalty to be paid. And in a split second, the Lord, you, you realize that that penalty has already been paid for you, right? It is finished. It was wrapped up. The bow was put on. It was handed to you. And all you have to do to get justifying grace is open the package and receive the justifying grace. And then you may have heard it said before that you're then justified. And it's a really cool, it's a little bit cheesy, but it's a really cool way to think about it. It's justified, never sin. So in a split second, you're justified by God's justifying grace, which is awesome. Okay, so that's one facet. That's, remember, the facets of the diamond ring. 
you can turn it just a little bit and you can see the facet of a justifying grace. It happens in a split second. The second type of grace that John Wesley taught about is sanctifying grace. This is a longer process. It has nothing to do with your salvation. Okay? If you are justified by the death of Jesus Christ and you've received that, then, uh, then this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But sanctifying grace is a process throughout your life by which you grow closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and you fall more and more into his perfect will for your life. And that's what uh, John Wesley and, well, theologians in general call sanctifying grace. But then we get to that third one. And this is where I want to rest for the rest of my time up here because it is ridiculously amazing if you can really grab hold of this third type of grace. So we've talked about justifying grace that happens in a moment, sanctifying grace that happens over a period of time and is a process. Actually, Paul calls that working out our faith, right? But this third type of grace is called provenient grace. Now, that's a big word. Don't get caught up on the big word. We'll break it down. But provenient grace, and that's the grace of God that before you even know that you need him, he has already begun to trailblaze for you, to, to cut out a path for you to walk, to get close to him, to, to receive justifying grace and sanctifying grace. And there is activity of God in your life right now that's going to lead you to a decision you're going to make tomorrow. Now, it could relate to first-time salvation. It could relate to rededicating your life. It could relate to tons and tons of different things. But God is laying the ground and blazing a trail for you to go down so that you can receive his absolute best in your life before you even know you need it. Again, if you can grab onto that, it will change your life because every trial that you go through every joy that you experience in life, every means of grace, every facet of the grace of God that you experience, you will view as a marker, a blaze. You know when you're hiking in the woods, how many of you like to hike? Raise your hand. Okay, if you go into a, tra- a, a hiking trail that's already been blazed, what are you looking for? You're looking for marks on trees, right? Somebody has gone before you, figured out the best route, kind of cleared the path for you, and they've marked that tree white, or this one red, or that one blue, that's what trailblazing does. They actually call those little marks on the tree blazes. You're looking for blazes as you hike. And that's what these little means of grace are to you. Like when I saw those leaves turning and it just wrecked me about thinking about seasons and my children changing, you know, turning the pages of chapters of their lives and how I could best support that and pray for that and be there for them as they're going through these challenges. That, those leaves falling was the blaze that said, the Lord says, this is the way. This is the path. Go this way. Follow me. Um, And that's what it means for the the trailblazing grace of provenient grace. Uh, It trailblazes. I love that. I love that that way to say that. Provenient grace is the reality that you have a guiding, a guide directing you as you walk. If you will just say yes to his guidance and believe that he knows best. Right, Because we can go our own ways, right? We can, we can tra- blaze our own trail. Do you think that's the best trail to blaze? Of course not, right? There's a way that seems right to man, right? But only the Lord knows what's coming ahead. Only the Lord has already been that path for you. And he's marking them. He's marking them with the leaves falling. He's marking them with things like... Have you ever stood beside... A, this is supposed to be later, but I just feel like right now I need to say this. Have you ever stood beside the ocean... And watch the sunset. I'll never forget when I was 16 years old. That's the first time I ever saw the ocean. In a Panama City, I believe it was. And uh, I went on a band trip. And um, I'd never been to the ocean before. And I'm really glad. I'm glad I didn't. it had not become familiar to me at the age of 16. Because that's kind of far along in the journey. But I remember the first time I looked out. And I saw water that never ended. And I, don't, I think I was a believer. But I wasn't very far along in faith. But I remember just this overwhelming sense of big. Like, wow, we drove, um, 1996, I drove with some friends all the way to Alaska from North Alabama, 9,700 miles round trip, and we're just driving along in Canada and on the Canadian highway, or the Alaskan highway, and we hit this, I saw this little bitty way down, way, 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 I didn't realize how far, but way down the road, I saw this little bitty mountain, and I thought, wow, there's the mountains, we finally get to see the mountains. And we drove, and we drove, and we drove, and that mountain got bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually that road that we were on, dead end, you have to turn right or left, and right in front of us, 
was this huge mountain. And I remember thinking, who made that? You know, I know a God, but I don't know a God big enough. I did not at that point know a God big enough to carve out. These were 14 to 18,000 foot peaks, huge mountains. I didn't know that God. And so that, again, is a means of grace. God carved out that mountain, who knows how long ago, just for that moment for me so that I could see him as he was, as big as he was. And so that's, that's the concept of provenient grace, that he's blazing a trail for you, that he's giving you and he's dropping these little nuggets so that you'll come to know him, that you'll go the right path, right? That you'll not trust in your own ways, but you'll trust the path that he has for you. And we're going to talk real quickly about three characteristics of who God is that blazes trails for you. Number one, he's a God who woos us, W-O-O. Have you heard that word before? It's an old word. It's actually an ancient word, but we've kind of redone it. We've kind of reworked it in America or in the 21st century, and we've made an acronym out of it because it makes sense to us, and the acronym is Winning Others Over, W-O-O. So a woo is, a, is, a, is a, the concept of making yourself attractive uh, in order to win other people over. And that's what God does. Scripture teaches that. In Revelation twenty two seventeen, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. There's two people that are saying, Come here. Well, there's two groups. Of, there's one person and a group of people. The Holy Spirit is calling out to all of humanity to say, Come to me. I'm, I'm, I am what you need. This is what you need. And he's just crying out, come. But it also says another group, a group of people here uh, also cries out, and that's the bride. Now, who's the bride in Scripture? The bride is the true church of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about church goers. I think there's a big difference in church goers and the true bride of Christ. But the ones who have really given their life to the Lord, burned the bridges and said, I can't go back. There's nothing I can do to turn away from the Lord. I think that's the true bride of Christ. And this scripture in Revelation shows us that sometime, sometime in the future, there'll be a moment where the true church of Jesus Christ, which I hope most of us are part of, is crying out, is wooing, the, uh, wooing for all of creation to come to the Lord. And he uses a really great word picture here. I, when I read this scripture, all I can think of is July, in the middle of July, and it's 105 degrees outside, and you're mowing the lawn. You know, I still use a push mower, and we have a pretty small yard. And our, our um, front yard is on a hill, and I just, oh, man, middle of July, it's 105 degrees, pushing that push mower up the hill. Uh, it's not self-propelled. And then running down the hill and flipping it around and going back up the hill. I get so thirsty. Like, I get so thirsty on the inside that I run in the house. I love unsweet tea. I used to love sweet tea till I found out I was diabetic. Now I love unsweet tea. Uh, I love Mountain Dew. I've loved Mountain Dew since I was a little kid. But when I get that thirsty, I don't want any of that. I want the real deal. So I go and I get me, you know, the biggest cup I can find in there. I fill it full of water and pour it, pour it, or fill it full of ice and put water in it and just turn it up. And I don't care if, like, there's water coming out the sides of my mouth and down my shirt. It doesn't matter. I just want to be as full as I can possibly get with that water. That water is attractive to me. That water at that moment physically is all that I need and nothing else matters. Uh, and that's Jesus Christ wooing us to him. And uh, if you open your eyes, you'll, you'll experience. You'll, you'll be so attracted to the Lord that you won't be able to turn your back on him. So he's a God who woos us. Secondly, he's a God who draws us. Now, it sounds really similar. This is a real similar concept. Uh, but the difference is a person who woos is they become attractive in order to attract people. But a person who draws actually has an action involved. And I believe Scripture is real clear that the Lord draws us to Him. Um, there's two words for draw that's used in Scripture. One, this word that we're talking about in John six forty four. Let me read it to you. No one can come to me. You know the Scripture, right? Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This word right here, used for draw, is halkuo, and it is a very gentle casting of the net, hoping to catch something. Okay? There's another word for draw, which is suro, and that is where it's like if you're catching a fish. Have you ever, when you were a little kid, you had a little clear cup, 
and you're trying to catch the little tadpoles in the, in the creek, there's two ways to do that. One is to not jerk it down and try to catch one. Very rarely do you end up with a tadpole, let me tell you. But when you just like gently put that little cup down in front of the tadpole and get something behind him and scare him into the cup, you're much more likely to catch him. So that's the difference in these two words. You can actually see it in John 21 when Jesus is sit, sitting on the... Um, Bank calling out to his disciples who have gone fishing, like Jesus has already died and disappeared, reappeared to him, disappeared again, and Peter just said, I don't know what to do, let's just go fishing. So they go fishing, and Jesus shows up on the bank and calls out, guys, cast your net on the other side, right? Those two words are actually used in that scripture. The first one is when they cast their net, and they're slowly pulling their net through the water, hoping to catch fish, and the second one is after they have the fish, and they're caught, then they're dragging them up on the bank. And that's a literal dragging. God does not do that type of dragging to us. God casts out his net gently in love and hopes to capture some of us. And it's our choice. We can choose to, to, to run from him like the tadpole, or we can choose to just let him just wrap us up and uh, bring, him, bring us to him. So that's the kind of drawing that the Lord does. So the Lord woos us, the Lord draws us, and finally the Lord pursues us. He pursues us by having already provided what we need before we even know it. We've already talked about that, right? Uh, the scripture there, if you want to write a scripture down, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I wrote this down in relation to this. Grace is the gift of God freeing us to respond. Think about that. Grace is the gift of God freeing us to respond to a path that was already prepared for us before we even knew the invitation or the proposal was coming. So this is the driving through the ice storm. You know, this is the uh, taking the ring and the little clay pot to the waiter and asking him to present, present this to Julie that, you know, later that night. That's what God's doing. That's the pursuing that God is doing for you. Uh, St. Augustine, in the early, about 1,600 years ago, a long time ago, said, our, re- our hearts will not find rest until they find rest in God. And God longs, 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 desires a relationship with you so much more than you even desire a relationship with Him. And so He's constantly in the... He's, he's taken action to win you over, to woo you, to pursue you. Um, and what He's going for is the big question. Hey, this is when the rubber meets the road, so I want you guys to really focus in on this. All of this stuff that we just talked about, this wooing, this being attracted to you, this drawing of your heart to him, and this pursuing you with a, with a pathway, is all leading up to the moment that he asked you the big question. Okay, And we see the big question to his disciples in one place in Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Listen to this story. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So this is obviously a rhetorical question because Jesus has another question that he's going to follow up with, right? And so some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Here's the question, though. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, what I'm really interested in is this question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. God is calling his disciples into a deeper relationship. Now, these disciples knew him, right? They had walked with him. They had worked with him. They had co-labored with him. But he was calling them into a deeper relationship, calling them into a new standing with him. Uh, And... Peter obviously answered correctly. Covenant. The Lord calls us into covenant. The Lord promises that he will do this for us, and this is what he requires for us. In Genesis, we see it. 9, we see it with Noah. In Genesis 15, we see it with Abraham. In Exodus, we see it with Moses and the Hebrew nation. In 2 Samuel, we see it with David, God making covenants, making promises to his people. And now we're in the New Testament age, and we see God making covenants with his church, his bride. And he's calling you right now. He's already put things in your life where he's attracted you and wooed you. He's cast his net out to draw you in. And he's pursued after you. And now he's asking you that question. He's asking you that question this morning. Who do you say that I am? And he's waiting for your answer. 
It's a divine love, a love, a God love. It's a seeking love, a wooing, drawing, a pursuing love. It's an everlasting love. And more than anything, the grace of God is a trailblazing love. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve broke covenant with the Lord, didn't they? God had made promises to them and asked for this requirement of, of Adam and Eve, and they broke, they broke covenant with him. And uh, Adam was ashamed. He tried to hide, didn't he? They sewed up fig leaves to try to hide something that became, became real to them. And the Lord, uh, the next, or that afternoon, the Lord pursued Adam, wouldn't let him go, and called out to him and said, Adam, where are you? Where are you? The Lord knew where Adam was, right? He wanted Adam to have to answer that question. Where are you? Who do you think I am? Trailblazing. I'm going to tell you one more story. I hope it comes across right because it's very, it's deep inside of me. And sometimes it doesn't quite come out like I like it to come out. But it's too good to put into words, basically. But um, one of the most wonderful things the Lord has ever allowed me to do is um, take groups of men to the Alaska bush, Alaskan bush. We literally fly into Anchorage in a commercial plane, and then we hop on a bush plane. Sometimes it's a float plane or just a bush plane. Um, Can you slide that slide forward for me? Uh, Sometimes it's... um, Lots of different kinds of planes, but we actually fly into off the road system about 220 miles into the bush of Alaska. I think Matt Wicks is in this picture, actually. I think this is Matt's group. Yeah, second from the from the left. Um, and we all that we have on our backs is what we have for eight days. So we're literally living off the land. We're hiking. We're camping, etc. Uh, and the very first time, I can I can't even begin to tell you how much this means to me because. Uh, God changed totally open. I t- shared a little bit about how he opened my eyes up to him in, uh, on the way to Alaska in 1996. And that mo- it was about that moment that I saw that mountain and then we took a right turn and then we drove for about three hours around um, the mountain that I told you about. I think that one's about 18,000 feet tall. And you have this huge cliff on this side and then you have a lake that looks about like an ocean on this side. You can't see the end of it. And there's this little road in the middle. And you're driving on it for two to three hours. And uh, that's the moment where really seriously I, I was introduced to a God that's bigger than what I could have ever imagined him to be. Ever. Like there's nothing that could have drawn my heart to see the Lord except for that mountain and that lake. Now it's different from you. It's not saying that everybody has to go there, right? It's going to be different for you. But that's what the Lord needed to show me to show me who he was and how big he was. And so um, we're driving around that thing. I'm getting a revelation of who God is. And I make a commitment to the Lord. I'll never forget it. I said, I will take as many men as I could possibly take from now, as long as I can take men to do this, to show them how big God is. I made that commitment. So for six or seven years, I went to Alaska two or three times and did a few things. Uh, But the year my dad died was 2007. It wrecked me to the core. Like, literally, I wasn't a husband that year. I wasn't a father that year. I was just broken to pieces that year. It wrecked me. There's a long story about why it wrecked me that I'm not going to get into. But I'll just tell you, I was crushed as far as I could have felt like, as far as I could have been crushed down. And I met a man. His name's Peter. Um, he was younger than me, actually. Um, I, we're still best buddies. Uh, but he, some, he, he came into my life the week before my dad's accident, which took his life. And the week, two weeks after my dad's accident was the next time I met with Peter. And I cannot describe to you how much he was a godsend. Like, Peter Goodwin was the reason. He, he lived in Auburn. He had to stay in Auburn, didn't want to be in Auburn. But he was here because God had a plan for him to, to touch me, to, to take care of me and nurture me. And um, Peter had no idea of all the Alaska history that I had at that point. But we were sitting in his truck at... Um, Byron's, uh, Byron's Barbecue Place, whatever that's called. We were sitting in the cab of his truck, and he looked over, and I had been crying, and I was just torn to pieces. And we had talked about me for probably an hour, and he said, you know, I'm going to take some guys to Alaska this summer. had no idea that I had any Alaska history. Um, and he said, the Lord's given me, kind of put it on my heart to take some guys to the bush. I have the resources and ability to do this. And, um, and the Lord just spoke to me and says, I, this is a facet of my grace to you and I said dude you don't even know about my Alaska stories and so we we decided that we were going to start this thing called original design where we take guys to the Alaska bush for a week at a time and 
the very first time, I'd never been to the bush before. I stayed on the road system, kept it safe, stayed in the cities. But this uh, very first time we went to Alaska for the bush trip, um, we were going to go out two days before and blaze a trail. Like we were going to a totally untouched part of Alaska in the bush plain. And we were going to figure out we need to look for this tree, and that means turn right. We need to look for this turn in the river, and that means turn left. And we kind of marked our places. So when we got guys out there, we would make sure that, they, that we didn't get them lost. Um, but in the process, we got lost. And oh, boy, it was fun. Within an hour of being in the bush for the first time in my life, we had made a wrong turn. We turned right instead of turn left. And Peter said, we got to get over there. And I said, well, that's a big old lake between here and there. And he says, we're going right down the middle. Turns out it was a, it was a, um, a, beaver, lay, a beaver pond, and it was only about this deep. But within an hour, I was basically stripped down to nothing with a pack over my head, this deep in mud and water. I was like, dude, what have I done? I thought I was going to die. And literally that whole day was just this series of just like, literally, I, there's two times I've been in Alaska I really thought I was going to die. That was the first one. We ended up spend, not getting lost and spending the night just kind of in the middle of nowhere. And there's bear stuff. I'm not going to use the word, but piles of bear stuff everywhere. Like we're just in the middle of it. In the middle of it. And we're stepping over this, and we're blazing the trail and fi- trying to figure out where to, where to the, take the guys. And I began to get really angry with the Lord, because I'd been through a really hard year. And I thought the Lord was going to take me to this really amazing place and just clean me out and just give me an awesome experience. I was miserable. Like, I cannot tell you how angry I was over the course of a couple of days. We finally got to our base camp. Figured out what we were going to do, hiked back over the mountain, picked the guys up the next day, spent two days getting to base camp. Again, just in situations you can't even imagine. I mean, it was, it was like a reality show on TV, no joke. But um, when we got there the second time with the guys, uh, I was pretty much done, and I was angry for God for taking me out there. And I told Peter, I said, dude, man, I've got to get out of here. Like, I do not need people around me right now because I'm about to lose it. And Peter said, well, just, you know, go that way. And I go about 100 yards from our camp. Now, you got to understand, I was alone in the Alaskan bush with bear stuff everywhere and bear trails and game trails everywhere. I was scared to death. Like, I thought I was about to be eaten, but it did not matter at that moment. Like, I was so frustrated and so angry that um, none of that mattered. So I walked 100 yards. I got into grass that was taller than me. And I was like just, you know, going through the grass like this. And I just stopped and I just fell to the ground. And I was just, God, why did you, how could you do this to me? This year that I had this last, you know, over the last 12 months with everything that's happened and is hurt and is, is, uh, is empty as empty as I am. Of, and as much as I really don't want a relationship with you at this point, how could you take me here? How could you put me in the middle of this place? And just, you know, make me feel like I was in hell. And I, I, I remember falling to the ground. And um, I was just at the place where I just fell asleep. I can't even explain it. I'm, seriously, there could have been a bear anywhere. I mean, the grass was so tall you couldn't see anything. I fell asleep. And I remember, um, you, you know, when you're waking up in the morning, somebody shakes you a little bit or taps you and says, you know, time to get up, time to get up. I felt that. Literally, I will never forget the moment that I felt the Lord kind of shake me and wake me up. And um, I felt the Lord say, just get up, just sit up. And I sat up, and I looked across this lake, and I saw the most beautiful mountain scene that you could ever imagine in your life. Can you go to the next slide? That's not it, but that's close. <laughs> this is a picture I took in another place, because I will not take this picture that, of this place. Um, because it's so special to me, and I'm not going to share it with anyone. And I looked, and I saw the most amazing, beautiful mountain scene that you could ever imagine. You know, the weather was unbelievable. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. And literally, the Lord spoke into my heart, almost verbally. This has happened to me about three times in my life, where I almost heard the Lord's voice speaking to me. And he said, never in the history of the world has anyone sat right here in this spot and worshipped me. Never. You are the very first one, and this is our place. Guys, you know in college you have our place, right? When you're young, you're a young adult, not the young kids, but when you're a young adult, there's this place that you found that's so beautiful, and you meet the girl, you know, that you really care about, and you want to share that place with her, and so, you know, you take her up on the, 
hill or whatever and overlook and you just enjoy yourself. You know, there's no, nothing going on. You're just enjoying the, just the fact that you get to share this place with this person. That's what the Lord did for me. Literally in the midst of my anger, frustration, pain, my lack of desire to have a relationship with him, he said, all that stuff you went through, 2007, you know, the fact that we got you here, all the stuff you've experienced the last two or three days, the pain of losing your dad, the pain of not being a good father over the last year, not being a good husband over the last year, all of that was just the means, facets of grace to get you here. And this is your moment. And still, to this day, no one in the history of the world has sat in that one spot looking at that one mountain scene and worshipped the Lord except Kevin Beasley. That is provenient grace. I hope that makes sense. And I'm going to ask Stephen to come up. Um, and I want to give you guys the opportunity to have a moment with just you and the Lord. Um, he didn't just call out Kevin Beasley and show him our place. He's got a place for you. It may not be today. It may not have been yesterday. It may not be here in this building. But somewhere, the Lord is dropping breadcrumbs. You know the story? Dropping breadcrumbs. Go get the next breadcrumb. Get the next breadcrumb until you find your destination, until you find your place with the Lord. And it doesn't end. I, I found my place that day, but I've had other times since then where he's taken me to that place, to where he says, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more. Let's take the next step. And then I'll rest there for a while. And then I'll go through pain and I'll go through the trials of life. And then he'll say, you know what? Tap, tap, tap. Next step. Next breadcrumb. Next facet. The next means of grace. There's more. There's more. There's more. There's more. Grab it and let's go. Grab it and let's go. Grab it and let's go. That's provenient grace. He wants to be your guide He wants to drop the breadcrumbs. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to say yes in the name of Jesus.